Our scripture reading today is from Hosea 1 and 3. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Deblame. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver, and a homer, and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Amen. Amen, and welcome. Good afternoon again, and especially if you're a guest or visitor or you're visiting with a, a friend or loved one, we especially want to welcome you to Mosaic. Uh, as you can see, we're in the middle of a series called Searching for Christmas, and uh, the reason we're calling that is I think it's fairly obvious that at Christmas time that most people in our culture really are searching for something, right? They're searching for either that perfect gift or the, the perfect tree or the perfect holiday party or perfect Christmas cookie recipe, or maybe they're searching for something not quite as simple, but something maybe with a little more meaning, like time with family or a trip or something. But uh, what we've been, either way, we've been saying, though, that Christmas time really is a time where we, in the U.S. in particular, where we search for something. And out of all the people we could look at to help us with that search, we've been looking at the minor prophets. People call them minor prophets. And these were Bible writers who were called what they were, not because they weren't important, but simply because they wrote less than their buddies, the major prophets. And the minor prophets all have given us some incredible clues as to what Christmas is and would be really all about because the minor prophets all in one way or another predicted the coming, the birth of Jesus Christ. And so I think that if we can see what their message was, that just might help us with our search today. And today, out of all the stories, out of all the minor prophets that we could have looked at, we're looking at the book and the story of someone named Hosea. And if you aren't familiar with Hosea, uh, with his book and with his story, when we went through the scripture reading just a moment ago, right, you were probably thinking, what in the world are we talking about today? What is this all about? You know, like, hide your kids, hide your wife, crazy stuff, bizarre stuff. Morgan, when are we passing around the coffee and the pumpkin pie, right? It's Christmas. What's this story all about? Well... A man by the name of Dr. James Boyce, who he was a, a pastor and scholar in, in Philadelphia for many years until his death a few years ago. He wrote and published thousands of sermons, and a lot of those are available online. And when he taught through this book, when he came to the book of Jose, when he preached through this chapter, chapter 3, he entitled his message, The Most Important Chapter in the Bible. How about that? He called this passage the most important chapter in the Bible. Now, you may or may not agree with that by the time we get done today, but I hope, regardless, you'll give it a chance. What's this story all about? How does it point us? How does it show us our search at Christmas time? Well, we're going to see that in three ways. First, through Hosea's pain, 
through, second, God's problem. God has a problem here in the book, and we're going to see what it is. And finally, through Gomer's price. Number one, let's look at Hosea's pain. And uh, we see this sort of start off here in in chapter one, verse two. And God tells Hosea, he says, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her. For like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. All right. So why is Hosea in pain? Well, it's not, you know, too hard to see. God's told him. To go marry someone that this translation calls a promiscuous woman, that the, uh, the, let's see, the New American Standard calls a harlot, that the ESV calls a whore, I think you get the idea. You say, well, man, this kind of thing is crazy. Are you sure Hosea got the message right? I mean, he was like a, like a prophet after all, right, Pastor Morgan? I mean, prophets like hear voices, don't they? Are you sure he heard the right voice? And the answer is yes, yes. This is what God was asking of Hosea, and Hosea did it. He married a prostitute named Gomer. And of course, the question everyone asks at this point is, well, why? Why would God ask this of him? Why would God do this? And the answer is that God is asking this of Hosea because he's trying to get something across to you that he couldn't get across any other way, and that's this. God is trying to get across to you today, to me today, to Hosea, and to all people for all times that you and I, we will never understand who he is. We will never understand the God of the Bible until we come to see and understand him as a lover, as a husband, as a matter of fact, our lover, our spouse. And unlike the other metaphors in the Bible that describe God as, uh, as a shepherd or a king, like we looked at a couple of weeks ago, or even as a creator, the book of Hosea shows us, I love this, the deepest and most innermost part, the deepest part of the heart and the nature of the person of God. And in chapter two, which we didn't read, God said to his people, oh, by the time, he says, by the time I'm done working in your life, by the time I'm done loving you, you won't call me master anymore. No, you'll call me, he says, your lover. You'll call me your husband. And look at what he goes on to say in chapter two. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice and love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness. Oh, I love it. Three times he says, not just I want to, but I will marry you. What's this teaching us? Again, it teaches us we will never understand who the God of the Bible is until we understand that our relationship to him and with him is just like two lovers in a marriage, like a husband and a wife, or a wife and a husband in the covenant of marriage. And let me ask you, does that, does that make you a little uncomfortable? <laughs> I think it should. I think it might. I think if it doesn't, we just might not be getting the full meaning and impact of what God's after here. So let's ask, well then why would, why would God say that being in a relationship with him is like being in a marriage? And let me give you three reasons why he would say this. And before I get into any of them, let me just say that the the purpose of this today isn't to glorify marriage, if you're a single person especially. This isn't to pressure anyone into marriage or anyone out of marriage. 
Yeah, it might go that way. Just kidding. All right. It's just to say that, again, God's trying to get across to us that we will never get him until we understand this. So again, why would God say that being in a relationship with him is like being in a marriage? Three reasons. Here we go. Number one, it's because marriage is demanding. (laughs) Marriage is demanding. And I didn't say that your spouse was demanding. All right. Although that may be the case in your case. Or not the case, in my case. Just want to get that on the record. All right. Hey. <laughs> but what I mean is to make a marriage work, it requires all of you. It requires all of you. You know, I don't think that anyone I've ever met was truly prepared for the demands of marriage. And actually, after being a pastor for many years, having done a bunch of marriage counseling, I don't even think people are relatively prepared for the demands of marriage or let me just speak for myself as they say for when I got married because when I got married I had no idea what I would be asked to to give up because in my mind I was just giving up what stuff I didn't really want even want anyway like those three old stinky nasty roommates right man good riddance happy to be done with them I get a permanent you know better upgraded roommate praise the lord thank you very much I thought maybe I'm just getting rid of like that old furniture, which nobody wanted, got off the side of the highway. I wasn't prepared for the demands that marriage, not carry, but marriage would put on me. And the demand is this. In a marriage, the other person comes first or they don't come at all. They go first or it doesn't go at all. The other person has to come first. Every other relationship you have to learn is negotiable, right? Parents, important but negotiable. (laughs) Children, crucial, but not primary. Your friends, don't even think about making them first. And for some of you, especially dudes, that relationship that you may have with that video game controller, oh, let me just say that no matter how much attention you may pay that video game controller, no matter how much you may caress that thing, punch its buttons, it can never turn the heat up in the house at the end of the day, if you know what I'm saying. But it can make it a whole lot colder, though. (laughs) Every other relationship with every other person, every other so-called priority, including your job, if it's not bumped down your playlist and not the number one hit, the marriage won't work and it can't last. I mean, why do you think, for example, so many celebrity marriages fall apart, right? And this isn't to pick on them. It's just they're very visible and noticeable. Celebrity marriages, many of them, you know, they're doomed from the jump, as the kids say, because both parties looked at each other and though they promised to love each other, they both in the back of their minds had a thought, which is this, I'm a star and my star is growing brighter. And if you in any way, this relationship causes my star to dim or to fade, I'm out. Because my relationship with my career is more important than you. Matter of fact, I read this quote this week from a young, uh, famous actress, somebody, somebody whose name you'd probably all know. She just got married. She's on a press tour. She was asked about what being married was like, how it was being with her husband. And she said this quote. She said, I had a boss moment the other day. She said, I was doing a press conference and they kept asking me what it was like to be married. And I said, being married is not my achievement. My achievement is producing this film and having a producing deal with a major studio. That is my achievement. And she added, everyone shut up after that. It was really nice. Now, I, hope, I pray that marriage makes it. But I want to tell you, with all due respect, assuming I'm understanding what she's meaning here, 
she is wrong. She's wrong because the relationship is the achievement. Being married, staying married is the achievement. Films will come and go. Audiences, reviewers, critics, oh, they come and go. They'll use and forget. But if you're married, your spouse remains. You say, well, it's really hard. No, no, that's really marriage. And God is saying here, this is how much I want you. I want you. Like how much a spouse looks at their beloved, their betrothed on their wedding day. He said, I, he's saying, I want you that much for forever. Is that how much you want me? That's what being in a relationship with me is like. Number one, marriage is demanding. But second, marriage is also exposing. It's exposing. And what I mean is this. As the saying goes, you can fool some of the people some of the time. But men, husbands, let me tell you, you can fool your wife none of the time. Just to fill in the blank for you. And women, really, in the end, you're not fooling your husband either. He's probably just delayed in his response to you. So just give uh, us, I mean, him some grace. All right. But either way, you're not fooling anyone when you're married. Your friends, you can fool them. Your community group, community group leader can fool them. Even fool, yes, even me. But if you're married and I wanted to know how you're really doing, I'd go ask your spouse. I'd ask them because they know, and by the way, free marriage advice here, husbands, one of the wisest things I've ever done is just to give a whole bunch of people, yes, that I trust, but a whole bunch of people carte blanche permission just to go in and ask my wife at any moment how we're doing, how she's doing, how I'm doing. They don't have to go through me. They can just ask and vice versa. I've given my wife, man, carte blanche, just open door to go and ask anybody to come talk to me. She can talk about me to anybody, anytime. Why? Because I'm not fooling her anyway. I'm not fooling anyone. I'm not trying to hide us or hide me because it's pointless. Once you're married, your spouse really knows how you're really doing. And I've lost track of the time. Carrie's called me out, thankfully, about my priorities. And even if what, what she was saying wasn't 100% accurate, and by the way, is anything anybody ever says to you 100% accurate, right? <clears throat> the question you should be asking is, Uh, not, is this 100% accurate? You didn't accurately represent all my words and phrases. And if it's not accurate 100%, I'm just going to shut you down because haters going to hate. Back off, lady. No. No. The question you should be asking is, is this close enough to the truth? Somehow. Is God in this somewhere? Is the Holy Spirit in here somewhere? Is this close enough to the truth to help me see something I couldn't see on my own or I couldn't become otherwise? Marriage exposes all your motivations. And by God telling Israel and us in this passage, I want to relate to you like a husband to her wife or a wife to her husband. And you say yes to that. It means God's saying, I'm going to see down into the very bottom of who you are. We're going to talk about it. So marriage is exposing. But third, thankfully, marriage is also transforming. Hooray. Because you say, Morgan, so far you aren't painting a very flattering picture of marriage. I was thinking about it. You talked me out of it right now. My goal today isn't to be flattering. My goal is to be truthful. And if we'll acknowledge simply what marriage is, which is a demanding and exposing relationship of total commitment, and we commit ourselves to living in the middle of that tension, now we get this third aspect, which is that marriage is a kind of relationship that can change your life like no other relationship can. Because if and when Carrie would ever say to me, you are the greatest man I know. 
even if she's lying or saying it through clenched teeth, right? Do you know what that does to me? What it'll do to your spouse? Because when someone who knows you like that affirms you like that, it can change you like no one else's words can. Even if the whole world is against you, even if you're being criticized unfairly or maybe even fairly, but your spouse is affirming you and you are together and you are united and there's that love and power happening in your life, you can take on the other 7 billion-ish people on the planet, right? I mean, you can say to the whole world, bring it on, baby. You can look at, you know, a continent, bring it on North America, bring it on Europe, bring it on Africa, bring it on, you say. But if that's not the case, and there's not that unity there, agreement, if there's the house divided, even though you're killing it at work, even though you're winning with friends, you can feel weak and depleted on the inside. See, marriage has the kind of a, a power that can change how you think about yourself. It can lift you out of the lowest, darkest moments in your life. It can literally transform you. And so God is saying here to us, I want to love you like that. Man, isn't that amazing? I want to affirm you like that. My love can change you and enable you to take on the world, even if it's just you and him together. So marriage is demanding. Marriage is exposing, but it's also transforming. And because it has that kind of power, now you know a little of how Hosea felt. Now you know a little bit about his pain. Why? Oh, Because as we read Hosea's story, we find that the very one who has that kind of power in his life, the power to heal him, to change him, to transform him, is is using that same power against him. The one who had promised to be faithful has betrayed him and is breaking Hosea's heart. And so God now, in the book, in the book of Hosea, he looks at all of that. He looks at Hosea's pain and he says to Hosea, oh, now you know what it's like to be me. Now you know what it's like for me to love you. Now you know what it's like for me to love human beings. And that thought right there brings us to number two, shows us God's problem, God's problem. He's got a problem in the book. And his problem here in Hosea is that he is in a relationship with people who are breaking his heart. Look at chapter one, verse two. God says, for like, just like, in the same way, an adulterous wife is unfaithful to her husband. This land is guilty of unfaithfulness to me. And to see how far his people have fallen and how much this hurts him, we're going to fast forward now to chapter 3 because things for Hosea and things for Gomer have gone from bad to worse. In chapter 3, Gomer has fallen about as far as someone in that day, even in our day, could have fallen. Because as it turned out, even after she married Hosea, She did not cease her street walking way. She didn't quit living her previous life. She kept on putting herself into the arms of other men and went back to her street walking ways again. But because of and through this choice, by the time we get to chapter three, we see that Gomer is literally for sale. She's for sale. She's up on an auction block and Hosea has to go and buy her back. How did she get there? Hmm. Well, either because she fell into debt somehow, which was a likely entry point into slavery in those days, or what's more likely, as the sort of critical biblical consensus says, Hosea, excuse me, Gomer had gone back to being a prostitute. 
And now her pimp was done with her. Either she had betrayed him or her value in her eyes had diminished. Either way, now she's for sale. And because she was for sale as a sex slave, she's likely stripped and standing naked on an auction block in the middle of her city in the street. So her potential buyers could see what they would be getting. And with Gomer standing naked on an auction block in the city, God comes and he says to Hosea again, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and who's an adulteress, even as I love the children of Israel. God's telling him, no matter what she's done, Hosea, take her back. Just like I keep taking back my people, no matter what they've done. Now, Don't get me wrong, this is not, as you may be thinking, or as some people have made it out to be, this is not saying there's no grounds for biblical divorce. This is not saying you have to take back an unfaithful spouse indefinitely. This is not about that. No, this is showing us here that God has a problem, which is that he keeps on taking back people who betray him and break his heart and turn to other gods. And if, therefore, Hosea's pain in chapter 1 shows us that our relationship with God is like a marriage God's problem here in chapter 3 shows us our relationship with him is sometimes like a bad marriage, a bad marriage. You say, why? Well, over and over in the book of Hosea and the prophets throughout the Bible, God compares the worship of other things besides himself to spiritual adultery. That's what he compares it to. In other words, and here's what I mean, if there's something that's more important to you than being loved by God, than loving him, if something's more important to you than following him, obeying him first, it's the same as if you put yourself in the arms of that other thing. And to complete the metaphor, God uses himself. It's just like you putting yourself between the legs of that thing. And just like Gomer couldn't help herself, just like she kept going over and over back time and again to what she had been doing between the arms and legs of her lovers, God says, through Gomer's actions, you can really begin to see what the human heart is really after, what the human heart is really searching for. And what that, what, what that search is, what the human heart is really searching for is something we can see in the light of this story, which is this. Underneath all our other searches, our hearts are searching for a kind of ultimate love. That's what we're searching for. Underneath all our other searches, we're searching for a kind of ultimate love because when we say to that thing other than Jesus, when when you do that thing you know you shouldn't, what's at the bottom of that thing is a search for a kind of a feeling, for a kind of ultimate love that only the spousal love of God can bring into your life and heart. Let me show you what I mean. If what you want is to be promoted and to get promoted, you got to cheat, you got to lie, you got to steal, you got to fudge the numbers around the deal, misrepresent yourself. What you are saying is, oh, I am searching for something that's going to make me feel so good, so loved, so secure, so affirmed that the promotion or the recognition that I get is like being in the arms of my true love. If what you want is to be married so, so badly, you'll go to bed with someone you're not married to. What you're saying is, I want a feeling, I want a kind of something inside the sex and the intimacy that makes me feel like I'm cared for and known and loved, just like true love does. If you, if you look at a neighbor, perhaps someone with another skin color, ethnic background, you say to them, oh, I want the traditions of my culture. 
I want my history more than I want a right relationship with my brother and sister made in the image of God. Just like you putting yourself into the arms of your culture, arms of your history, and saying, I know Jesus commands me to love you, but I feel more loved right here. If your independence, for example, is what really matters, if you can't commit to other people, maybe even a deep commitment to a local church because you want to keep your options open, right? What you're saying is, I feel most loved when I am in control, and I find that in my own arms, In other words, the point is, idolatry, spiritual idolatry, is always at the root of whatever it is that people do wrong. And uh, by the way, I'm not asking whether or not you have rival gods. I'm assuming that you do. Because that's the Bible's assumption as well. Even if you call yourself a Christian today, hear me, your main challenge in life is to keep your heart free from the lure and from the snare of rival gods that sneak sneak they do sneak onto you that seek to crush and grind you down if you don't think that what i've just said is true if you think this is just like old testament stuff don't read the new testament pastor james what did you call the church in the first century he said i call them an adulterous people thank you pastor james book of james not sure i want james for my pastor you adulterous people he called the church. Why would he call them adulterous? Were they unfaithful in their marriage? No, he says, you're favoring the rich. You're favoring the wealthy. You're putting the wealthy at the top of your list of people you want to know. And what you do when you do that is saying by relating to you, by having that connection to a celebrity or to wealth or to power, you want that more than you want God. You've betrayed God. You put the rich ahead of the poor. That betrays God. Move on to 1 John. You think, well, it's maybe like one time, right? We can look past that. No, 1 John. In the book, the very last words John writes in his epistle, last words, last phrase, then Mike drops. He says, oh, dear children, keep yourself from what? Idols. Thank you. Yeah. From what? Making mistakes. Going to the club, right? Watching a bad show. No, he says, keep yourself from idols. Because what? Underneath anything that you ever do wrong is some kind of idol somewhere. And John is saying your task as a Christian person is to keep your heart free from rival gods, rival idols, rival affairs. But what Hosea shows us is that the tragic story of humanity is that we can't on our own ever do that. We can't ever do that. So what then can be done about it? What could God do to heal our hearts and bring humanity to home and even fix his own problem? Well, let's think. The parallels here are unmistakable, right? Hosea has got someone he loves. God has someone he loves. Hosea has someone he loves who's been unfaithful. God has someone he loves who's been unfaithful. Hosea went to find Gomer. Oh. What would God do to find us? Well, the way we can see that is through by seeing what Hosea did to rescue his love. And if we see that, we can see what God perhaps has done for us through number three, by seeing Gomer's price. When God tells Hosea to go bring Gomer home, Hosea, of course, at first, you've got to picture the story. He's got no idea what's going to cost him. He goes out into the city, wandering the streets to find her. And when he sees her up on the auction block, when he sees his own wife for sale, he begins to get an inkling 
of what it's literally going to cost him. And when he says in verse 2, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver to Homer and a leketh of barley. What he means is, I had to bid to buy back what was already mine. I had to haggle for my own wife. You can hear in his words the echoes of an auction, right? Ten shekels. Do I hear twelve shekels? Fifteen shekels. Fifteen shekels and some barley sold to Hosea? Hosea, aren't you Gomer's husband? And at the mention of his name, that name, Gomer's name, Hosea's name, Gomer likely would have opened her eyes, probably having already closed them to preserve her last shred of dignity, and she would have seen her own husband paying the price to redeem what was already his. Hosea would have come up, would have clothed her, put his own robe on her, put his arm around her, and led her home. And then he spoke these words to her. Verse 3, Hosea said, And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. He's saying, Gomer, I've paid the price for you to come home. We've still got some work to do. Oh, but when that hard work is done, we're going to belong to each other. Not just you to me, but I'm going to belong to you also. So did it work? Oh, did it work? Well, we don't know for sure. But I believe it did. I believe it did because there's no more mention of Gomer's cheating or adultery after this. I believe the price Hosea paid to win Gomer's heart healed her heart in the end. She remained faithful to him the rest of their lives. Now you say, all right. Yay, right? Nice, happy ending, good story. Well, what does any of this matter? What does it have to do with us or Christmas? Well, here is, this, here is what it means. Look at this. This matters because here, it shows us that as much as we need God, our king, to rule us, and we do. As much as we need God, our shepherd, to guide us, and we do. We need the intimate love of God as our spouse to heal us. Hear me. What the law couldn't do for Gomer, what his own power as a prophet couldn't do for Gomer, what the kings of that day couldn't do for Gomer, Hosea's love for his own wife did for her. It healed her heart. And somehow, though he lived, though he lived and though he wrote centuries before the coming of Jesus, somehow Hosea, as a prophet, he saw, he predicted, he prophesied that one day God was going to love his own people in the same way, somehow. And when he did, that kind of love would heal our hearts. He begins in verse 4, chapter 3, and he says, In the same way that, that, that Gomer, the children of Israel, have lived in darkness for a while, just like Gomer was in darkness, just like we're in darkness, we're going to live that way for a while. But then one day, look what he says at verse 5. He says, Afterward, something's going to happen. The children of Israel shall return. God's people are going to, they're going to seek the Lord their God and, and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Oh, Hosea says somehow God's going to 
do something. One day God's people will seek him, someone he calls David their king. He says one day that another kind of David is going to come, which is astonishing because David, the king, had already come and died and was buried. But Hosea says another kind of king is going to come, and yet he's going to be unlike David because what the future David will do, he's going to do, and it's going to cause people to come back to God, not because of his law, not because of his kingly power or rule, but through something what Hosea calls his goodness through the faithful covenant love of that future king. And when God's faithful covenant love is on display through the price, through another ransom that another greater, truer David will play, pay and bring, then God's people can have their hearts healed. Well, where was that price paid? Oh, it began just like in David's life, yes, in that little town of Bethlehem, but unlike David, who himself was unfaithful to his wife, Jesus Christ was utterly faithful to you and to me and to the Lord his God. And in the end, Jesus became what David could never become, and he did what David could never do. Jesus became the price God paid to get us back. He became the shekels. He became the barley. He became the price, the ransom, just like Hosea paid over with a stunning twist because even though Jesus Christ hear me had done nothing wrong he went in our place and he got what we gomers all our prostitutes with spiritual price tags deserve for all our unfaithfulness he was let out in the public square can you see he was mocked he was stripped naked he was sold for a price not to someone who was going to redeem him or deliver him but sold because his friends had abandoned him he was sold into slavery and put to death and his life was ended and yet Yet through his faithfulness and through the power of God, he was raised to life. He went into the grave as a gomer in our place, but I was raised as the ultimate Hosea, the one who comes into our life, who can pay the ultimate cost, come into the mess we have made of our own lives through our own choices, and his great love can redeem us and set us free. He covers our nakedness with his righteousness. He covers our shame with his own name. And when we hear that name, the name of Jesus, it says over us, he he speaks to every ruler, every power that's enslaved us, and he says, you are mine. I have come for you. I've come for you and you and you to set you free and to bring you home. What are we searching for? Oh, I think we are searching for a love like that, a love like that. And Hosea proves we can have it. It's ours in the gospel. Allow me to close with this short series of questions here for you, sort of a checklist for your heart first. If you're from another faith system today, I want to ask you respectfully, but candidly, what has your God done for you? Hmm? How has he proved his love for you? Or does he just demand your obedience? What price has your God paid to prove at infinite cost his own love for you? And if you're wrestling today as a Christian person with something that drives you to emptiness, let me ask you, what are you looking to, to prove you're somebody to make you feel loved? Jesus wants to free you from that and become that to you and for you. And finally, if you're working through something traumatic and you don't know why, you don't know what it's for, maybe have you ever considered God's maybe teaching you his heart for someone I mean, God wasn't just coming to show us something, although that was true. He was coming to redeem Gomer, to save her life, to spare her, and teaching Hosea his heart for her as well. Maybe God's turning you 
into a kind of a prophet. And lastly, if you've never allowed God to love you like this, what's preventing you today? Let's not allow these false lesser lovers to captivate our hearts like the extravagant, infinite love of Jesus, our Hosea, our Redeemer. Amen. Let's go to him now in prayer.